This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, my name is Tim Mackey, and I am an associate professor at UC San Diego in the School of Medicine, and also the director of healthcare research and policy at UC San Diego Extension. I'll be moderating this virtual panel, which consists of a diverse set of professionals from the pharmaceutical industry, medical and scientific communications, and medical writing consulting. I'd like to first give you a brief introduction to our speakers, starting with Dikran Torser, who is currently the director of the publications group at Takeda Inc., and also an instructor at UC San Diego's Extension's Medical Writing Professional Certificate. John, or Zeke, Tzansky is currently the managing director for Citrus and also involved in advocacy and outreach activities for the Medical Writing Professional Association, ISMAP. Carol Keyes is the Vice President of Medical and Scientific Services at Citrus, and Anyel Matik is a freelance medical writer at AIM Biomedical and a previous faculty member at the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University. I'd also like to thank the UC San Diego Extension Medical Writing Professional Certificate Program for supporting this webinar. So to begin, the key concepts that we will explore in this webinar include outlining practical changes in scientific publishing that are occurring during COVID-19 from multiple professional perspectives, discussing the changing landscape of medical writing and communication, including what changes might be for the better and others that may not endure. And finally, describing different career pathways in the medical writing and scientific communication industry that are now growing in importance due to COVID-19. First kicked off of our webinar by discussing some of the existing challenges faced in the scientific publication industry pre-COVID-19. I'll also discuss how these challenges may now experience acceleration in a post-COVID-19 world. And finally, I will also describe some of my own experiences publishing during the pandemic from the perspective of an academic researcher. To begin, in March 2013, the journal Nature published a special issue that took a look at transformations taking place in scientific publishing. At the time, paradigm shifts for publishers included changes to open access models, mandates to make government-funded research papers freely available, and examining the costs of different publishing models. These were at the forefront of debate in the academic community. While grappling with these changes, the global scientific output of papers continued to double, giving rise to more researchers, more journals, and of course, more papers. Today, some of these transformations are becoming more of the norm, including prestigious journal series creating open access sister journals, ongoing negotiations between universities on the costs of licensing agreements and open access fees through what's called transformative agreements, and the emergence of alternative access points to get around paywalls. This in addition to the need to evolve how we communicate and disseminate our research with enhanced content. One of the major challenges in this debate has been the changes in costs for publishing, both for university libraries as more journals are added and for the authors of the papers who in many cases have to pay thousands of dollars to publish in open access journals. Additionally, the volume of preprints and initiatives focused on open science have rapidly increased. Some of this conflict has been reflected in the failure or success of universities and publishers to come to terms on transformative agreements, including the current impasse between the UC system and academic publisher Elsevier. In the context of COVID-19, the most consequential global pandemic since the 1918 Spanish flu, some of the ongoing changes to the publication 
uh, industry are accelerating. This includes a rapid rise in preprints and open publishing, driven by the need to get study results out as fast as possible in order to better address the serious consequences of this public health emergency. However, this may also be leading to rapid peer review of COVID-19 related articles to the detriment of other important scientific topics and potential over-reliance on preprints prior to rigorous peer review needed to validate findings. Other controversies, such as assessing the appropriate costs of open access models and how to ensure equity in where and how science is published, continue to remain unresolved topics. At the same time, the manner by which we share, present, and network for research is changing, with virtual conferences and congresses becoming the norm. A few studies have conducted analysis of publications during COVID-19, with results relatively unsurprising. First, COVID-19-related articles are dominating the academic landscape for the time being, and countries that have been historically underrepresented in research output continue to show the same trends. How new publishing models and open access may better or worsen these dynamics is still unknown. Finally, I want to close with some of my own observations of the publication industry as a global public health researcher that is actively publishing on COVID-19. My public health data science and policy lab here at UCSD had 61 submissions to academic journals in 2020, ending up in 17 publications with an acceptance rate of around 25%. However, of these accepted publications, nine were about COVID and the time to decision was much shorter for COVID submissions versus other public health and policy topics we were researching. Finally, journals definitely changed their policies due to an onslaught of COVID manuscripts including fast rejection and triaging of papers, likely with little to no consideration, particularly at high impact factor journals. Here, what we learned was that having a publication strategy has never been more important, including knowing your journals, using calls for papers, and reaching out to editors directly. This last slide is from our data dashboard that tracks our lab submission histories. Overall, 2020 was a harder year to publish in than 2019. And without our COVID papers, I'm not sure what we would have been able to publish. It is clear that the academic publishing industry is undergoing an evolution and COVID is acting as an accelerant for certain ongoing trends. Interestingly, professionals in medical writing and scientific communication are well aware of these changes and have unique perspectives on where we are going. We'll now shift to hearing about their experiences in the field. Our first speaker, Dr. Dickren Torser, will start our panel off with his perspectives as the director of a medical publications department at a major pharmaceutical company. Dikran, off to you. Thank you, Tim, for the chance to present uh, on uh, the industry perspective of um, the COVID crisis. Just a quick disclaimer. So all opinions are myself and not associated with any company entity or uh, otherwise. The COVID crisis has had a huge impact uh, on industry publications. Uh, so just like it's affected uh, our everyday lives, the strategy that is associated with uh, publications has been impacted uh, in various ways uh, due to uh, the crisis. So specifically, uh, Congresses, where a lot of the material is communicated to the wider scientific community, have either been cancelled postponed or have gone virtual. So this has meant that the teams have had to think uh, of new ways or uh, have had to augment the ways 
that they communicate their uh, scientific message. Uh, and as ev- everyone knows, uh, networking, which uh, occurs at uh, many of the congresses, has actually become almost impossible. And uh, we've had to, again, think of new ways to network with the healthcare providers and the audience that reads uh, the publications. It's also true, uh, among this huge impact, that evidence generation in terms of uh, recruitment in clinical trials and uh, various other aspects of evidence generation work streams has been impacted. So one of the things that the teams have thought might help with this situation has been to rely more on the uh, more enduring uh, avenues of publication, such as manuscripts. So they've become a more attractive option so to disseminate the message. And also author availability has been the sum effect reduced due to the fact many of our authors are uh, healthcare providers and they have to treat patients. On the positive side, COVID-19 has actually forced innovation. So there's been an enormous increase in enhanced content that has been sent to publishers. So in various forums, I've heard that uh, the enhanced content has actually been doubled uh, at some publishing houses due to the demand. Industry has also had to rethink the way that we have engaged HCPs in in the Congress forum or in in other uh, avenues. Graphical abstracts uh, which hook the reader have increased also. Video abstracts are also a component that has increased. So in a lot of these cases, the innovation is trying to hook the reader so that the reader can have uh, more interesting content rather than the bland uh, posters that people used to put up in the in the former state. Another important effect has been increasing the importance of social media in publications. Obviously, a lot of compliance uh, is involved in this, but the impact is exponentially increased by making use of social media to communicate the uh, research that is so important for patients. One of the things that was mentioned earlier is the speed at which the science has um, been published. So one of the challenges has been for the whole industry and for the publishers is to maintain the scientific rigour with which science has been peer-reviewed. So obviously, as you have increasing speed, the rigour is more difficult to maintain and various professional organisations are presently working in providing guidance to help maintain that scientific vigour. And of course, as new ways of communicating science come up, compliance consideration become more more important. How do we vet the material that goes out into the public domain so that is of the highest quality, is precise, and also communicates the latest findings? So a lot of changes have happened since the beginning of the pandemic, many of which will be enduring. For example, the enhanced content, which used to be 
for only a small proportion of industry publications is now spread across almost the whole of the publication plan. So enduring will be a lot of video content, a lot of graphical content. New strategies will be incorporated as we come to grips and get used to the new environment so that we can communicate the new findings to the healthcare community. And also we'll have to imagine new ways of working. I think um, gone are the days where we can uh, really rub shoulders with uh, colleagues on a, on a daily basis. And a lot of places in industry are thinking of hybrid models where people work from home and go in when a meeting is required, a face-to-face -face meeting is required. And I've got a quote there from the Microsoft CEO where uh, he very clearly outlined the process that we've gone through, uh, basically responding immediately to this unknown, recovering and still communicating the results for scientific discourse. And also at the moment, I think we're in a reimagining phase where we're thinking of new ways to engage the healthcare community and patients. So that's the end of my talk. Thank you, Dikran. Our next speaker is Dr. Carol Keyes, and she will be providing the perspective of a medical communication agency with specific attention to publication planning during COVID-19. Carol, the floor is yours. Thank you, Tim. On the next slide, we'll see as a medical communications agency, we partner with pharmaceutical companies to develop and accomplish their goals around data dissemination and communication planning. So we face many of the same challenges involving solutions that Dickren just shared and spoke about. So though our focus today is on publication activities, including those that I've bolded here, uh, like abstracts and posters, uh, e-posters, presentations, the video abstracts and video content, uh, medical communications agencies offer really a full scope of services that our scientific medical writers are pivotal in executing. So when we talk about publication planning from a pharmaceutical and agency perspective, what we're referring to is this process for determining how to convey data through the appropriate presenter or author to the right audience, through the right data dissemination channel, and at the right time. Um, and time has become a very tricky component to be able to navigate clearly, especially through this COVID pandemic. So to, the, to do this effectively, publication planning in general, um, our medical writers and teams need to gain an understanding of the therapeutic area and landscape. So including who are those target audiences we need to reach? What are the clinical trial programs? Um, what are, what's the therapeutic area and the competitors in the space? What target journals or congresses make sense to go to and disseminate your data to, um, depending on audience and type of data that you have? And of course, who are the experts in the field that you want to engage um, from that data dissemination perspective? And so while diving into many of these things may be second nature when it's a field you're directly involved working in, um, for many medical writers, this immersion isn't always in an area that you're familiar with. Um, but typically or, or very often it's the scientific foundation and those critical thinking skills that enable scientists to get up to speed in new areas quite quickly, uh, a skill important for any medical writer. 
Um, just as a quick aside, I earned my PhD in molecular virology and think over my career, I've worked on two antiviral products. So we're certainly always learning. Um, but so for the assessment of this landscape and understanding the clinical development program for the drug we'd be working on, we would work to develop a publication plan. And I have a nice example of that on the next slide, um, which shows what a, what a publication plan looks like. So here you can see that it's a very coordinated, event-driven um, map of data presentations. And of course, each publication plan um, will look different based on the product, stage of development, and indication, but they will all be based on timing of data releases, important target Congress audiences and dates, um, as I mentioned, and other planned activities. So where is this product in uh, relation to launch? What data are coming out? Is it a pivotal clinical trial that will be coordinated with a lot of other activities? So there's a lot more than just when are the data gonna be available that really go into a thoughtful publication plan. Um, so a lot of this, you know, though it's remained very important and um, to be able to strategically think about a publication plan, a lot of the, the knowns that we typically rely on for how to do this in a very coordinated and targeted manner have been disrupted in this COVID area. So on the next slide, as we think about publication planning um, during this time, uh, you know, things have become a lot less predictable. So overall, um, science or medical communications in general, there have been a few main themes that have emerged around these medical communications or how data were disseminated to specialty and public audiences during uh, the COVID pandemic. Um, as has been mentioned, there's been a push for transparency around the data, not only publishing findings, but also making raw data available in data repositories or otherwise accessible. Um, there's been this important balance of speed, needing to get information out quite quickly, especially um, COVID-related, uh, but also the balance of maintaining accuracy and that scientific rigor that Dickren also spoke about. I mean, with the push to move the science forward, uh, more and more studies and articles that were published on data were open access or free for anybody to see that full publication. Um, so really trying to be transparent, trying to get information conveyed accurately and quickly, and trying to be accessible. Um, but what did it mean for, for groups or researchers who weren't involved in COVID-19 research? Um, while that has achieved a lot of attention in 2020, as Tim has showed us too, and rightly so, um, there was, it was hard to break through for publication activities and to some extent like at infectious disease congresses or others that were directly related to COVID um, to, to break through on research that wasn't COVID related. So there's been a lot of discussion around how to, you know, how to keep research going, how to remain relevant during this time when so much is so heavily focused on COVID-19. And things changed for us too, in terms of how we thought about and executed our publication plans. So a process that had traditionally been very coordinated, predictable, 
and targeted was kind of flipped on its head for a while. We're seeing things balance out as we've all become familiar in um, the this world that we're finding ourselves living in. Um, but the reality has been that there have been a lot of delays. So from clinical trial recruitment, um, delays in hearing from key opinion leaders or authors, especially those who were involved in treating patients with COVID as a priority and not so much working on manuscripts that we, we may be involved with, in with them. Um, also a shift in priorities. So companies, pharmaceutical companies that did have COVID-related products, people and resources were shifted to prioritize those and perhaps leaving other projects um, on the back burner. And journal priorities, too. As, as we've seen, there's just been so much published on COVID in the last year um, that a lot of other uh, publications on different topics are seeing a lot of delays in you know, finding reviewers, uh, getting a response from the journal, and ultimately getting published. Um, it has, though, on the other side, accelerated the innovation that I think we have all started to see in the field, which has been something that's um, exciting and perhaps will continue into the future. So on the next slide, let's take a look at just a, a case study about you know, how we tried to think about optimizing Congress uh, presence during this kind of virtual world um, that emerged last year for medical meetings. So the situation was that this was an infectious disease therapeutic area. So even from there, we know that things are going to be disrupted a little bit. Um, that there were many Congresses, including the one that um, I'm specifically referring to here, that were either canceled, um, which this one was, but abstracts were being published in a journal supplement, but no way to convey, otherwise convey those, those data that were originally going to be presented at the Congress. Um, and a relevant Congress later in the year was going 100% virtual. So a lot of things to think about, you know, do you want your abstract to still remain um, if there isn't going to be an associated Congress? Do you want to push it to a Congress that was virtual and nobody knew yet how that was going to look? Um, and a lot of considerations revolved around the authors. So these were infectious disease physicians involved in um, prioritizing COVID-related projects. Uh, the client, you know, we still have to um, work with the clients who have this desire, of course, to disseminate their data to the right audience at the right time. But what did that mean now? And to have an impact and the user experience. So, you know, as we thought about virtual meetings where there were going to be these virtual poster um poster halls, so to speak, how to best engage this virtual audience and to maximize the impact of the data. So right from the start, you know, in thinking about what to do, it, it was a lot of keeping our finger on the pulse of this rapidly changing Congress environment last year. Certainly moving to the forefront, the development of audio or video abstracts and allowing uh, users and users to have access to additional enduring information that perhaps, you know, wouldn't wouldn't have been at the forefront of our minds if we knew it was going to be a, a normally run meeting. Uh, social media has come up, so trying to, you know, with the unknowns about who was going to attend these conferences, expand the share of voice uh, through that avenue. And then thinking about, too, does this change the prioritization of publication and publication timing for the associated manuscript? So how does that then fit in? 
And we were lucky to be working with a client at the time who was already very forward thinking in creating a new dynamic approach for poster scientific poster presentation. Um, so moving away from the more traditional poster layout to one that will stand out in a virtual or in a real poster hall, uh, stand out from the crowd. It includes a, a very clear and concise overview of the data and of the conclusions. And it allows for the um, retrieving additional information through a QR code that supplements the information that's given here. So for those people who want a deeper dive into the data or the methodology or relevant information that was accessible, um, and then also a QR code to link to an audio or a video um, abstract or presentation of these data to try and um, simulate a more uh, the, the Congress feel of having a presenter talk through the information. And many Congresses also adopted this. So it was nice to be ahead of the curve and not scrambling to try and figure out how to accomplish a lot of these goals in the virtual environment. Uh, so finally, on the next slide, uh, the interim result, and I call it an interim result because I think we're in the middle of figuring out where we're going to go next um, and how we're going to continue to innovate and think about publication planning, including Congress uh, presence. So this virtual on-demand content certainly provided the potential for larger and enduring audiences. Um, in virtual meetings, they did achieve the primary goal to share and discuss the data. And I think we'll see that continue, but perhaps um, in more of a hybrid model. There's been a lot of talk about uh, moving into 2021, probably at the beginning, still virtual meetings, but um, doing a more hybrid version of Congresses. And, you know, always thinking about room for improvement or ways that we can make the experience better. Um, so really thinking about methods for meaningful two-way engagement with the presenters, how to continue to break through the noise or to really elevate your presence in the meeting, uh, the coordination and content of presenter and audio video recordings, just to get folks a little bit more comfortable with, with doing that, and then continuing to engage attendees. And I think ultimately, you know, where we want to go is not just achieving that primary goal of data dissemination, but thinking about forming that sense of community and how to generate new ideas through those interactions that are always so important at live Congresses. Uh, so thank you. Thanks very much, Carol. And uh, I definitely have had my share of virtual conferences and I'm not sure exactly which side I'm gonna fall down on if I wanna continue that or to uh, get back to you know the real face-to-face uh, -face conferences, which I do miss. Um, thanks again. Our next speaker is Zeke. He will be uh, shifting our conversation to changes that are occurring specifically in the medical communications landscape, which is slightly different than this focus on medical publication planning and medical writing. Uh, Zeke, look forward to your insights. Yeah, thanks, Tim. Um, it's a pleasure to be part of this session and part of this panel. So I have to admit, when uh, COVID hit uh, beginning part of 2020, my colleagues and I looked at each other and thought, wow, how bad can this get? And the first two months was a little bit difficult, kind of figuring out a new landscape. How would medical communications agencies react? 
And how would the pharmaceutical industry react as that's predominantly our clients? Um, and I thought I would take you through some of those findings and then just give you an overview of what's entailed with the medical communications agency and what we've seen change uh, during COVID from a landscape perspective and from a skill perspective. Decron and Carol sort of focused on publication planning, which is a major component of a medical communications plan and medical communication strategy. And that's sort of the middle part of this slide. But there's a lot more that goes into medical communication offerings. So on the left side, you can see all of the research and analysis and the development of the scientific story the scientific strategy and the scientific platform and pillars that are needed to articulate the science and articulate messages. And then on the right side is as you move toward launch, some of the engagement that you have with thought leaders, as well as the peer-to-peer -peer interaction that is going to enhance that education out in the field. So ideally, uh, where medical communications companies do their best work is they engage with clients early in the pivotal trial phase uh, specifically phase two, where we assist in the validation uh, of the trial design. And based on that, le that leads up to all of the educational components that are required uh, at launch. And on the right side, it just we talk about this holistic life cycle plan, where as new indications come out, new studies are launched, you stay with uh, the client and continue to further uh, that medical communication and scientific communication strategy. But at the end of the day, you're trying to find the optimal value of evidence and value for a product. So years ago, medical communications was, you know, predominantly you were hiring really, really good scientists. And that's still the case today. Uh, but so many other factors go into being a successful medical communications agency. Um, market dynamics in the buying infrastructure, value assessment of the product, uh, what are the decision drivers, what is the environment uh, that we're entering into. So what we're seeing as folks come into the medical communications industry, they have tremendous scientific acumen, but the ones that are being most successful are beginning to understand market dynamics, uh, health education and outcomes research, and real world evidence. Those two pieces or three pieces combined have become a vital component of successful medcoms agencies. And, you know, the markets become really diverse. Five to 10 years ago, you were really just dealing with the large corporations, the AstraZeneca's of the world, the Merck's of the world, the Pfizer's, the Eli Lilly's, because they predominantly had the funding. But really, in the last five years, we've seen an explosion of innovative biotech companies that are heavily funded as well as rare disease companies. And I just put a few of these up to highlight uh, the folks that are involved in some of the rare disease work and innovative biotech. And on the bottom left, even private equity is starting to get heavily involved in the life sciences industry and is becoming a major player. So the diversity of companies that are funded and the diversity of the research that's being done is significant, which is putting more pressure on medical communications agencies to deliver. And then when we think about what makes a successful, you know, medical communication strategy, it's really the strategic and scientific execution of the three M's. And by three M's, we mean medical, marketing, and access, the three major groups in a, within a pharmaceutical company. 
And what we're trying to do is really figure out what's the landscape that a product is entering into, what scientific insights and market insights are required, what is the strategy moving forward, and what is the evidence that supports those strategies. And then that leads to the development of the scientific platform, which is a major component. Decron and Carol have given a great overview of publication strategy and the publications plan. But at the end of the day, we're trying to support, you know, timely data release. We're trying to provide clinical context to healthcare professionals. Uh, we're trying to meet a medical need, and we're trying to support those educational initiatives that are required in the marketplace. You know, and what we can never forget, it really is about the patient. So this is just an example of the difficult journey, patient journey. Uh, for somebody that has brain cancer, glioblastoma. And when we think about the patient journey, we have to think about the healthcare professionals that need to provide information to that patient or to that patient's support group or caregiver to make sure they have the right information at the right time. So when I think about why do we do what we do, is we're trying to develop a universe of understanding and a, a communication requirement. And in the middle part of this graphic is just, these are the people that are involved in educating somebody that might be going through cancer. And on the outer part of the circle, we try to time what information does the healthcare professional need or the payer need at the right time to make an informed decision to get the best possible treatment to that patient. And then when this all comes together, um, really strong science and evidence becomes and underpins is the blueprint for all medical communications that are going out of the marketplace, both from a medical education perspective, what's being presented at societies and congresses, what are the communication pillars, what do payers need to understand the value of a new therapeutic alternative coming into the marketplace, and most importantly, regulatory, what is allowed to be said legally and ethically. So I started to do a little thinking about, well, where are we going in the COVID world? Um, and where are we going in a COVID world with medical communications? So emerging therapies such as gene and cell therapy, they're more complicated and more difficult to explain than ever. And what that has led to is an explosion of expectations and requirements for medical communications agency. So there's higher levels of medical communication information required. Now all communications are being delivered virtually. Uh, there's not a live meeting occurring. I think to Tim's point, we'd all like to get back to a live meeting at some point, but not sure when that will happen. Um, what we've seen initially is that technology for delivering content, um, it does not quite meet expectations, but you saw from what Decron presented in Carol, major uh, advancements have happened in the last 12 months. And really what we've learned is we're building a new engagement experience on the fly and it's not going away and we're going to have to make it better. So when you think about, you've got to reach out to healthcare professionals and patients in a virtual environment. Data visualization is now more critical. The only thing we're looking at is a screen, is a laptop, is a phone. So the way data is presented is critical. And finally, I believe the future, and I truly feel the future looks bright. Um, the marketplace has embraced the digital revolution. Uh, we've seen a few surprises with enhanced digital scientific content. Um, 
on-demand content is being viewed more often. And I think part of that is the one example Carol showed where posters, there's a little bit of user choice. It's more um, user-friendly to be able to focus on the data that you'd like to focus on, not what's being presented to you. We've also seen in a Zoom environment that presenters have the opportunity to engage with, with attendees. And then we've always talked about reaching a global audience, but it was very difficult when you had to travel the globe. Um, now it's become a reality and quite cost-effective through a digital world to reach that global audience. Um, and two final points. Digital thought leaders are emerging and they are learning very quickly how to communicate effectively. And we have to enhance and continue to provide them with the tools to do that communication. And then finally, um, articulation of science. So what we do um, and what scientists do is a real necessity for enhanced learning. And ultimately, we're all in this business to improve patient care. So that's my piece. Thank you very much. Thank you, Zeke, for that uh, wonderful discussion. I've never heard of the term digital thought leaders, but uh, I'm sure it's going to be something that's, that's important moving forward. Um, our last speaker is Dr. Aniela Matik, and she will be discussing her on-the-ground perspective as a freelance medical writer, including her career pathway from a faculty member to a medical writer. Aniela, looking forward to your talk. Tim, thanks for organizing this exciting panel discussion. Um, as Tim mentioned, I'm going to be discussing what I would call the on-the-ground uh, experience with publications during, as a medical reader during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, on the next slide, I'll just give you a little bit of background about me. I've been a freelance medical writer for over eight years. Throughout that time, I've mostly focused my work on scientific publications, so peer-reviewed manuscripts and conference abstracts and presentations, but I've also worked on some educational materials for healthcare providers. For my entire freelance career, I've worked from a home office, so I smoothly transitioned from my pre-COVID to post-COVID working setup, which I already had my favorite devices and office setup ready to go. Um, for me, one of the best things about working in medical writing is that I learn something new every day, echoing the same thing that Carol was saying earlier. Uh, I've worked on a variety of projects. Um, in the past few years, I've worked in areas as diverse as neuroscience, colon cancer, infectious diseases, and diabetes. On the next slide, there's an overview of how I got to my current freelance medical writing career. I didn't start with my college degree or my graduate degree, but it actually started as a kid at the kitchen sink with my sisters, mixing whatever liquids we could find to see if we created a reaction. After my graduate work, I did the standard postdoc and then accepted a tenure track faculty position, which I stayed in for about three years before I realized that it was just not going to be a good fit for me for the long haul. When I took some time to consider my next step, I came across medical writing and it seemed like it could be a great career where I could use my skills of critical scientific thinking, researching, and the interest of writing in science. So I left my cushy professor position with full benefits and went straight into freelance medical writing career and I haven't looked back since. So um, now let's get into a little bit about the on-the-ground publications work on the next slide during the COVID pandemic. Uh, the first example I want to share with you is of a manuscript that I was asked to help develop 
about patients who had severe COVID and who were then transferred from a traditional hospital to what's called a long-term acute care hospital, which are designed to take care of patients who are no longer critically ill, but who still need a significant amount of medical intervention. This project mirrored what seemed to be happening with uh, COVID data publications in general and what you've heard uh, earlier in the talks, and that there was a push to really get the data out as quickly as we could. Because of this, the data set was not airtight ahead of time. Uh, and every time I saw the manuscript on my desk, I had to make sure and go through the data with a fine tooth comb to make sure that all of the data still made sense. Another challenge with this project was that um, COVID-related publications, especially those talking about the post-acute phase of the disease, were really scarce at the time. So there was some flexibility, but on the flip side, uncertainty about how to put the data into context in the introduction and discussion part of the paper. Um, also, I had to stay on top of regular literature searches in, in this field and update uh, appropriate citations on every revision of the manuscript that had just come out in the last week or two since I had last seen the paper. Um, on uh, a side note, the group of doctors who were, wanted to publish their data in this manuscript had very little previous experience with publishing in peer-reviewed journals and assembling a rigorous data set. So the process took a bit of handholding there. Um, it's entirely possible that this is happening in other publications uh, and other projects as well. So on the next slide, I'll discuss a second example that uh, I had during the COVID uh, pandemic. This project was a peer-reviewed manuscript in the field of telehealth, specifically on remote prenatal monitoring. You can see a picture of the prenatal monitor in this photo, and that was taken from an earlier publication. Here, this project was about a study that was designed before COVID, but the study rolled out during COVID. So there were some changes in the actual patient enrollment from what was specified in the study protocol, as well as some changes to the way that the providers and the patients were trained to use the prenatal monitor, both of which we had to explain in the manuscript. Also, the bigger picture change for this project is that it was presenting data on a telemedicine device. And as we all know, telemedicine became hugely important during COVID. So now we had to add new context to the introduction and discussion sections of the manuscript, which we weren't originally planning to do, describing how obstetric care was changing during COVID and how this device might assist with that transition to telemedicine. Additionally, we did have some slight delays in receiving answers to our data analysis questions because some of the team members had altered or reduced work schedules due to the COVID-related work-from-home shifts. And then my final example on the next slide about uh, publications during COVID that I'd like to share with you um, was working on a conference poster that was supposed to be presented uh, in May 2020 uh, in person at Digestive Disease Week. Um, this is, gets into a few more specifics, but very similar to the experiences that Carol was talking about. About six weeks before the conference was originally scheduled to be held, we got an email from DDW saying that they were canceling the in-person portion of the event and that they were going to try to host something virtually at a later date, but we didn't receive any further details at the time. Well, the next update that we got said we had two weeks to upload the final version of our poster and our audio presentation to accompany the poster. Well, that made for a really fun dash to finalize everything. 
Luckily, we already had most of the data into figures and tables and had prepared a draft of the poster uh, that had been reviewed once around already. But when the conference went virtual, they changed the layout of the e-poster from the in-person version, which required a bit of work to reorganize their data and make sure that it was all still presented properly and made sense in the new layout. Um, then there was also the need to create an audio script to accompany the poster, which wasn't in the plans originally. Uh, luckily for this particular project and client, the audio recording didn't have to go through any formal approval process um, before we uploaded it. I know that wasn't always the case uh, anecdotally that I heard from other colleagues who were working in uh, similar situations at the time. And then after this particular project wound down and, you know, the spring-related COVID changes wound down, I also realized that this long-term client of mine was submitting fewer abstracts to fall conferences or conferences for 2021 than they had in previous years. So I would say there was a bit of, you know, real evidence of the adjustment that, uh, as Dikran was mentioning earlier, Conferences were becoming less important and the manuscripts were potentially becoming more important in their publications plan. So on my final slide, uh, just a few practical uh, bits of information that I've also uh, noticed just from reading and being involved in the field. Uh, Some observations would be um, first for non-COVID related papers, there have definitely been delays in the peer review timeline. Um, echoing what others said earlier, uh, one example is a manuscript that I worked on in 2020 that had non-COVID data in it. We had a lag of over five months between when we submitted the manuscript and when we heard back from the journal, despite asking for updates. Um, other summary data of uh, journal submission to publication or submission to decision times have also shown delays in peer review for non-COVID related papers which my guess stems partially from the increase in the number of submissions that most journals and biomedical fields have seen uh, in the spring of 2020 related to COVID uh, data. However, for COVID-related papers, they're generally moving through the submission process much faster than a non-COVID-related paper. Another trend that I've noticed is that researchers are increasingly using preprint servers to get their data out. Uh, with a significant chunk of this past year's preprint articles being COVID-related data. I also think that publishing data on a preprint server has become viewed as more acceptable or almost normal for COVID-related data because of this increased uh, need for uh, publicly available data and the increased speed with which people want to get the data out there. Um, I mentioned, you know, that this COVID-related data, uh, there's the push to get it out quickly. And I do think that that's happening, not just in my one example that I shared with you earlier, but generally across the board for COVID-related data. Um, So because of this push to get the data out more quickly and the push for faster peer review and faster time to publication at the journals, I also want to highlight the need to make sure that if you're working in COVID-related data, um, that the publications you're citing haven't been retracted. Um, To me, it seems that there could be an increased need for vigilance with this increased speed of the whole process of development and publication. Uh, I've had good success with using the independently run Retraction Watch database for identifying retracted articles. Thank you. Thank you, Aniela, for the wonderful presentation and just reminds me of the fact that we had to change our 
introduction section over and over for our COVID-related articles as the literature and as the epidemiology around the disease changed. Um, first, I want to thank all the speakers for their insightful presentations and perspectives and shift over to a few questions about what the future holds for medical writing and scientific communication post-COVID-19. I'd like to start off with Dickern and Carol uh, with a discussion about, you know, maybe drilling down a little bit more into these specific changes we are seeing, which ones are being accelerated, and what, more importantly, which ones are here to stay and which ones may not be uh, invested in. So, uh, for example, some journals are now requiring graphical abstracts or visual abstracts and not making it optional. Is that something here to stay? And then specifically, what are the implications of all having all of this content always recorded and, you know, uh, what the legal or even compliance ramifications of that may be for researchers and companies alike? So, Dickren, you want to start our conversation there? Thank you, Tim. Um, that's a really insightful question. I think uh, one of the main things that uh, we uh, know will stick around and uh, will be um, there in future state is the uh, graphical content. Graphical content is here to stay and will increase. It was here before and it will be more and more important. And that makes sense. Uh, we knew that graphical content is absorbed around about tenfold faster by a reader than is uh, straight text. So that's uh, here to stay. Um, that's one of the uh, important things. Another thing here to stay is the flexibility that's required. As uh, the panel, Carol, Aniela, and also Zeke uh, and yourself uh, stated, um, the venues where we are actually communicating the science for the scientific discourse, um, they require flexibility. If it's not this Congress, it might be the next Congress, it might be a manuscript. So flexibility there, and we, we uh, work with our agency partners to facilitate that. What's here not to stay, I would say, is uh, some of the heightened knee-jerk reaction that uh, happened when COVID came in. Um, we didn't know what was uh, the future state and uh, everything was being reviewed. Uh, so we've never had that level of control uh, that, um, that that, that uh, authors um, uh, experience. Uh, you know, authors can say whatever they like in front of their presentations. So uh, the reviews, I feel, will decrease and uh, the scientific uh, discourse will become uh, freer and um, it's already free, uh, but it will become uh, much more relaxed, as in my opinion. Carol? Yeah, thank you. I, I agree with a lot of that, Dickren. And I, I think what um, we're seeing is that the COVID-19 pandemic really, really pushed forward the innovation that we were starting to see. So for some of that more easily digestible, um, small bits of, of scientific content, like the video or graphical abstracts, like a more um, data visualization method or something, a poster that's a bit easier to digest. I think those are going to stick around. And I think there's there's been a trend that's just been accelerated this past year. Um, I think that enduring material is becoming a lot more important. Um, as, as you're saying, and um, the accessibility of that material. And what does that mean for the approval process? We saw early on when we were doing some of these virtual meetings that every word, every spoken or written script had to go through a legal approval. 
Um, and, and I agree, I just don't know if that's sustainable. So where's gonna be, you know, the pendulum has swung one way, where is it gonna land in the middle um, that both companies and the legal representation are gonna be comfortable with? So I think that's something, um, I don't think that level of um, real scrutiny there, or level of approval is gonna stay, but I think it'll be somewhere in the middle to still allow the presentation, but not have it be so scripted. Um, those those digital thought leaders that Zeke was talking about, I would love to see more of that and that it isn't just reading from a script that had to be approved through everybody and their brother, but just more of a, let's get back to that dialogue. And that's the part that I, I think is, is going to change. So even if hybrid meetings remain, there has to be a way to get the engagement better um, to really be able to have that scientific discourse that was just became very kind of robotic at some of these meetings. Um, so hopefully that won't stick around or hopefully it'll kind of end up in a place that makes it feel a little more uh, natural. Thanks very much. Yeah, I know from my personal experience, I just recorded two e-posters last night to get them into a conference. And some of the advantages of posters is that you really get to have discussions with people. You really get to interact with people. And now it's it's kind of like a five minute presentation and that's it. And you don't really have any interaction with people because people are not commenting on the posts. And I'm not even sure if anyone's watching the videos, to be honest. So it's a real tricky environment, and I'm sure that uh, things will continue to evolve. And hopefully we pick the best parts and discard some of the things that are just less efficient. Um, my next question is for John and Anella. Um, and this really focuses on kind of the career aspect and the changing landscape of medical communications and medical writing. And really talking about, well, I think we can all recognize that medical communication and writing are very important now, especially in the context of translating science to the public so that they understand it and so that we can combat a lot of the misinformation that's around uh, these public health topics. So I want to ask both of you, what skill sets, what specific skill sets do you think are going to be the most important things to invest in uh, pre post covid for medical writers and medical communication professionals. And maybe we can start with uh, Zeke first and then go to Anella after that. Yeah, Tim, important question. Um, I think as I referenced, the landscape is is changing. And I think the, the piece that's changing it the most is the influx of gene therapy, cell therapy, rare diseases, and the impact on the marketplace and the emphasis on value. So, I believe we've, we've always been able to recruit medical writers that are very strong scientifically, but that outcomes research is critically important now and understanding the market dynamics. So, you know, when you go in front of a health technology assessment group in Europe, or you go in front of a major payer group, we have to have medical writers that can articulate the science well, which they do but then also understand the market and how do you communicate the value and that, that outcomes research data. And also we need a second piece of individuals that can help clients understand how do you design trials that have the outcomes data that will be available at launch so you can explain and articulate that value proposition. So some changes are needed and those are the areas that I would focus on. Anyel, I'd love to hear your thoughts. 
Yeah, thanks, Zeke. Um, well, that's I, the macro perspective is definitely appreciated there. I would say my perspective in terms of skill sets is a little bit more of the micro perspective uh, for you know the day to day what you need to succeed as a medical writer or a medical communications professional. Um, I think that a strong understanding of the basic science, as Zeke mentioned, is uh, a given. You really need that no matter what. I think you also need flexibility to pick up a new topic quickly, be able to be self-motivated and educating yourself too. Um, know where to look for new pieces of information. Know, and uh, it, I was unfortunate to say this, but I had a moment during the COVID pandemic where I think I was actually talking with family um, and I made the statement of, well, normally I would direct you to look at the CDC guidelines, but I honestly can't say that I feel totally comfortable recommending those right now. So just staying, whether it's COVID related or not COVID related, staying up to date on who is a reputable source of information, uh, no matter what the topic is. So knowing who the reputable sources of information are to go to, and hopefully those usually come from independently run professional organizations, uh, governmental agencies, but that may not always be the case. So just understanding, understanding the bigger picture of where the data are coming from um, when you are referencing the data uh, that you're in your materials. Uh, I've also always benefited from continuing education in my field. So I'm a member of a couple of professional organizations and I will regularly take continuing education credits um, whether it's webinars or in well, what used to be in-person workshops, webinars now. Um, I There's also certifications available within the medical publications and medical writing fields. And they've, I decided myself to get a certification because it was a good learning experience for me doing the deep dive reading in the field. But also I think it, you, it um, showed a level of commitment to the uh, upholding the ethical principles of the field and also the um, just the commitment to um, being at the top, you know, uh, level of your practice. So, Tim, one other piece I would add is just understanding the patient's perspective and the patient journey so that, you know, as a as a medical writer, you understand what science is needed and when to a healthcare professional or if you are going to be doing some patient related materials, how can you write in a way that all understand it and what the impact is for the disease and the individual going through it? Yeah, and I think that there's going to be a lot of research around, around the disease journeys for COVID related patients and also other social determinants that are going to be very important moving forward. Um, I'm going to just end with a last very quick question, uh, ending on a high note. Uh, what is something that all of you, and this is for everyone, what do you feel good about accomplishing during COVID-19? So let's end on a high note with a real quick response to that, and then we'll close the panel after that. And uh, maybe we can go with Aniela first, and then people can pick it up after that. Sure. Um, that's a great way to end the webinar. Uh, I feel good about accomplishing 
the project, the case study number one that I showed, working with that long-term acute care hospital to publish their COVID-related data um, because they were a group that had not really published much previously and was not experienced with the process. So I was happy to, I had connected with them on other projects before. So I was already working with them on other projects at the time that COVID hit. So we were geared, we were already matched up and were able to, you know, seamlessly move to that project. Um, so I was happy to work with that team and have that experience. Uh, I also would say, it was more of a blend of the work and personal aspects during COVID-19, but I also felt good that I was able to talk with my family and friends who have no science or medical background in a clear and accurate way about their COVID-related questions or misinformation that they had heard and to help them sort out what's fact from fiction and potentially provide some context to whatever COVID-related information they were worried about or asking about that like may have been missing from, you know, the news piece that they had uh, read recently. So, uh, so uh, a lot of things have gone wrong, uh, but a lot of things have gone right. Uh, so the wrong bits have been few uh, in my case. Uh, so I don't know if I've been lucky. Uh, I think uh, during the COVID crisis, we've been able to hire a bunch of people into my group. That's definitely a plus. I've uh, been able to teach with UCSD, definitely a plus. Uh, I've learned to be much more flexible and uh, being able to continue bringing value to the table, uh, help patients, that's definitely a plus. And uh, also, I, uh, you know, I've learned to be uh, really thankful for things that work uh, and uh, the vast majority of things that work really well for me during COVID. Um, in fact, uh, I, I, I kind of sometimes struggle on... Uh, what has gone wrong, but I know out there uh, things are not uh, always perfect. So a lot of people have uh, have encountered um, some negative consequences. So uh, I think um, I think that's my uh, total perspective on things at the moment. Great, thanks very much, uh, Carol. And then we'll end with Seek. Sure, thank you. Uh, so you know, traditionally, client meetings or publication planning meetings or really any kind of interaction with our partners at the pharmaceutical companies or our consultants, it's always been live and in person. And these wonderful, like day long strategic meetings where you get in there and really, you know, you're workshopping on a wall, you're, get, you're really getting down to the nuts and bolts of a plan. And I think what I've been really encouraged about and have enjoyed doing is seeing how quickly we were able to take that and say, you know, we still need to build relationships. We still need to do this planning in an important and new way and have accomplished, um, accomplished it in this virtual setting. I think, you know, I've enjoyed seeing people use their cameras more. You know, we're all in a different room right now, but I've gotten to know this group even virtually. And I think it's, you know, it's nice and it's encouraging to know that we're still building relationships. We're still able to um, to work with each other and it collaboratively and productively in, in this virtual setting. And I look forward, though, to when we can all get back together in person. Yeah, Tim, for me, it's probably, I would break it down into three buckets. First is, I feel so fortunate to work in an industry, in the life science industry, that didn't miss a beat. And similar to Decron, we're hiring. Um, we have built wonderful partnership relationships with new clients 
And that surprised me a little bit. I thought the whole face-to-face and getting together on a regular basis, that's what it really took to get enduring partnerships uh, and relationships. But I think people leaned in a little bit and kind of accepted the flexibility. And we've been able to carve out some wonderful partnerships over the last 12 months. And finally, one of the, the big highlights for me was we were doing some work with Moderna. It was not on their COVID vaccine. It was on another vaccine. But to see the work ethic of the people uh, putting in 20-hour days to get a COVID vaccine out the door was just extraordinary. So to have an opportunity to be on the periphery and interact and see the dedication and the motivation and the drive and the effort they put in um, just from a humanity perspective was, was really uplifting for me. So those are three areas that I would highlight. Great. Well, I, again, I want to thank all the speakers today. We got a very diverse perspective of what's happening uh, in the medical writing and communications industry from, you know, different perspectives of academia, agencies, uh, the pharmaceutical companies, and then even, you know, people that are in this career and enjoying it. And uh, I think, of course, that moving forward, science is more important than ever. And uh, hopefully COVID will be one of those enduring legacies where we will prioritize scientific communication and writing in this space. So again, I want to thank all of you for participating and uh, we hope for a great 2021. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.